Good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm happy to see students. I'm happy to see teachers. And I'm happy to see a variety of people I don't know whom I hope represent the broader public, because our goal in these lectures is to be engaging all of these constituencies. It's a great honor for me to welcome Andrew Marr to the LSE this evening. This is one of the last events of our Michaelmas term program. I'm pleased to announce that the Lent term program of events is now online. There are a variety of highlights, including the Swedish finance minister, Anders Borg, and the launch of the LSE Growth Commission. In addition to this, the program for the LSE's fifth literary festival, taking place from the 26th of February to the 2nd of March, will be announced next week. But back to this evening. Andrew Mars, I'm sure you all know, is a journalist, a broadcaster, an author. He hosts the Sunday morning BBC One program, The Andrew Marr Show, as well as BBC Radio 4's Start the Week every Monday. He wrote and presented his own history of modern Britain and the making of modern Britain for BBC Two, which were hugely popular with viewers and won prestigious awards from the Royal Television Society, the Broadcasting Press Guild, and BAFTA. More recent offerings include the Diamond Queen documentary and his most recent show, History of the World, which is being broadcast on BBC One. A book accompanies the series. I wanted to say, I've read the book, but I've actually only read the first few pages, but it has made me want to read the rest of the book. <laughs> and you should, too. And indeed, copies are on sale outside of the theater, and Andrew will be signing copies after the event. So if you all rush out during the last three or four minutes of the questions in order to buy the book, we will not see that as in any way insulting. Oh, good. <laughs> for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE history. Tonight's event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast on the LSE website, subject to no technical difficulties. I think this is, I'm not sure, a prediction there will be no technical difficulties or um, a, an allowance for the possibility that there might be technical difficulties, but we hope it will be podcast. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Andrew. But now, will you please join me in welcoming one of the most interesting intellectuals in Britain today, Andrew Marr, to deliver his lecture. Can we learn from history? Thank you very much for that generous and only slightly intimidating introduction. Um, uh, a confession, um, during my years at university, whenever I saw somebody standing in front of a lectern reading um, a pre-prepared script, I fell asleep. Um, and so as a result of that, although it has certain dangers, um, I prefer to speak without notes. Um, and uh, I hope you'll see there is a structure uh, into what I'm going to say, but... Um, uh, it's, it, it, the, the title, I think, you've been given that was advertised was Can We Learn Anything from History? And I'm going to come to that um, shortly. But I thought I'd start by sort of describing the project that has both been uh, produced eight hours of television um, and, and the book um, which was written before and alongside the television and talk a little bit about the whole question of popular history and avowedly popular history and why I think it is an entirely kind of serious and important project. Um, there's no doubt that doing something on television um, of this nature 
um, is, in many respects, a, a kind of crude, um, vivid, um, over-coloured version of history, which infuriates many academic historians. Um, I think this is very good for academic historians. I think they should be infuriated on a regular basis. Um, uh, but uh, when I started this project, I was very much aware, because of the age I am, um, of the really, really great series of um, cultural history and scientific history that first appeared on uh, BBC Two uh, during the reign of the then controller, the still relatively young David Attenborough. And Attenborough um, commissioned two people. Um, one was Kenneth Clark, um, who made the 13-part series Civilization. It went out in 1969. And it was a kind of uh, adverter, uh, advertisement for this wonderful new medium of colour television. And that was followed a couple of years later by a series that I personally regard as even greater by Jacob Bronowski uh, called The Ascent of Man. Um, so when I was approached to do this, the first thing I did was not to go back and look at Clark or Bronowski because that would have been too intimidating. However... Subsequently, I have gone back and looked at these series and also looked at how they were commissioned and the thinking surrounding them. And I came away quite reassured because Kenneth Clark could not have been a more elite, uh, grand public uh, policy figure. He had been um, director of, the, of paintings at the Ashmolean in Oxford. He'd, of course, been director of the National Gallery here in London. Um, he had sat on endless quangos. He'd been one of the founders of the National Trust. He was a very substantial figure. And when it was known that he was in, uh, engaging in this vulgar medium of colour television, he was actually booed at his club, uh, the Athenaeum, on his way to lunch. And he responded with a very vigorous defence um, of television as a medium, which was that, yes, although it's crude and immediate and vulgar, um, he said, I've never understood the separation between intellect and feeling. And uh, emotional, our emotional engagement with colour and music and, and imagery um, is part of how we apprehend culture and apprehend history. And this is a fantastic new mechanism we've got. It's not vulgarisation and it's not dumbing down. And I think anyone who watched Civilization um, would understand that it certainly doesn't need to involve dumbing down. Um, that was... Uh, what, what makes civilization, for those of you who didn't know it, so exhilarating was its unabashed and extreme elitism. Um, actually, for Kenneth Clark, civilization didn't include anything outside Europe at all. And in fact, if you look closely, um, civilization took place for about five years in northern Italy during the late Renaissance, and that was about it. Um, Bronowski had um, a completely different approach. Um, like Kenneth Clark, um, he was doing um, popular television history for a serious purpose. Kenneth Clark felt that civilization, however defined, was under threat in the 60s. Not clear to me exactly whether he thought it was under threat um, because of uh, the communist menace in the East or the capitalist menace in America, but it was certainly under threat from somebody, and he wanted to record it, really, in his view, before it started to disappear. Um, Bronowski... Uh, on the other hand, who had lost almost all his family um, in the Holocaust, um, uh, was absolutely obsessed by the importance of educating the next generation to understand science and understand our scientific progress, and therefore um, 
uh, act as, as more responsible, um, useful and active citizens in the world. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't dare to really compare myself to any of, either of these two genuinely great intellectual figures from the past, but in the book um, that I've written and in the television series uh, which accompanies it, um, there is an entirely serious purpose. I turn to um, the, the title of uh, what I've been asked to talk about tonight, which was Can We Learn Anything from History? And there is a very respectable argument, gone on for a long time, which basically says, no, you can't learn anything from history. Cultures um, in different parts of the world at different times are so specific, their internal um, geography, the, 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 the imaginative internal geography of different cultures, the way they apprehend and understand the world, their attitudes to politics and religion and to community are so different that you really can't draw wide lessons from this. History is um, entertaining, it's part of uh, what it is to be human to understand our past, but don't look to it for any kind of lessons at all. Um, I think it goes without saying, for those of you who've seen some of the television and if you've read the book, that I don't take this view, that I think um, actually there is a huge amount that is always being learned from history and can be learned from history. And I can just give you a couple of obvious recent examples. Uh, we are living through a time when um, all the Western economies are basically on their knees after the financial crash, when we are having to cope with a, a, what's going to be a a pretty substantial period of very little or no growth at all uh, when we have to start to make up for um, the years of boom, the locust years um, in which we were um, actually not earning as much as we were consuming as, as cultures. However, it could have been a great deal worse. There's an unpopular view, but if you look back at what happened in 2008... And you look at the way that uh, leaders around the world, including, it has to be said, Gordon Brown in this country, and the, the newly elected Obama uh, taking over from George W. Bush in the United States. These were people surrounded by policymakers who knew a great deal about what had gone wrong in the late 1920s and into the uh, early 30s and understood the terrible danger of the entire world economy freezing up um, with mutual protectionism and tariff barriers going up. And they worked together to, uh, for, on, on rescue packages, um, initial rescue packages for parts of the banking system, and on global agreements, which meant that in 2008, we did not go through what happened in 1928, 29, 30, um, which was the freezing up of the entire world system. So there's an example of people who were consciously thinking about history and taking forms of avoiding action. And by the way, what had happened in the 1920s was very similar to what's been happening to us now. In the 1920s, there was a long consumer boom based on real new products, in those cases, uh, white goods and, and, and uh, uh, cars, uh, newly, uh, the, the, the new industry of pre-manufactured clothes that you could buy off the peg, um, all sorts of new um, foodstuffs pouring mainly out of America but out of parts of Europe too on the basis of that consumer boom. Um, new kinds of financial instruments were created, including investment trusts working together uh, in groups. And this had something of the same effect as the uh, consumer boom based on electronics um, had during um, what we might think of as the Blair boom years here. Um, and 
Uh, again, we, we, we saw back then uh, vast speculation on land prices, um, all sorts of scams and deals. People talk about the Ponzi scheme. Well, Ponzi um, emerged out of the 1920s in Florida, um, selling off chunks of land to naive investors in America for housing. Housing could only go up and up and up. In fact, quite a lot of uh, Ponzi's housing plots were underwater. Um, people didn't know that at the time, um, but they paid up anyway, and the whole thing collapsed. Well, we had the same thing with the financial derivatives market um, in this country um, and in the States. So there were parallels there, and people did learn from history. So there is one, one example of a particularly specific learning from history. But if you take something entirely different, right at the other end of the spectrum, and you look at the, the issue or the problem of tribalism, um, something that um, political thinkers have argued about for a very long period of time. And if you look at the relatively recent work that's been done by uh, paleo-archaeologists uh, um, working on the early human uh, family coming out of uh, Africa 70,000 years ago, and indeed at the sort of 50,000 years or so of um, later Homo sapiens development inside Africa, and you look at the thinking that's been done about why humans got together in particular, particular groups um, of around three to four to 500 people, um, it makes complete sense. Because once you have that number of people, much more than a, a, a family group, much more than a bigger family group, then by definition, you will have lots of specialists. You will have people who are better uh, at getting out there and, and hunting berries or are better uh, at producing really sharp arrows um, who are very good at looking after uh, groups of children, whatever it might be. And you're able to maximize specialization and people are able to learn from each other in a more sophisticated way. That then turns out to be a really formidable um, unit um, of hominid biped, bipeds uh, moving around Africa and then moving around the rest of the world. Um, and it's very interesting that if you look even today in society and you ask um, people uh, how big is the group of other humans they really know and communicate with, you very often come around the figure of 300 or so. Um, so it's, it's stuck as, as a usefully sized group. The problem with the group is that, um, as I said, it's, it's larger than family, and yet it has to be united. Everybody has to feel part of the tribe, part of the group, um, to work together um, and to tr always benefit the tribe. Um, and that, of course, means being hostile to people um, who are not part of the tribe. And so out of, out of early human development, you get our, I'm afraid, innate and instinctive suspicion of people that look a bit dissimilar to us, smell differently, dress differently, talk differently, uh, support a different football team. Um, now, is that useful information? I think that is very useful information because it allows us to analyse our own behaviour and uh, adopt it. You never ever uh, learn from history by copying what happened in history. The point is always to look at what happened and see how the information be, can be transmitted today. One of the things that I think is absolutely clear is that it's much harder to learn from history when you are taking a lesson from one part of the world and applying it to another part of the world. One of the things that really struck me um, as I was researching this is the extraordinary length of time um, during which um, ideas, uh, philosophies, thinking, religion continue to affect cultures in different parts of the world. 
I would argue that if you look at what happened to China um, during the period of um, intense and relentless civil war, um, which uh, preceded really the, the rise of the first great empires in China, the first unifying empires in China, um, and you see the two contending schools of philosophy, Confucian, uh, Confucianism, um, with its emphasis on order through the performance of rights and family, um, and emphasizing um, the, the absolute importance of tradition, versus the more extreme school of the legalists under the sinister Lord Chan, um, which is all about the importance of central power um, and, and the absolute duty of a ruler to impose order through terror. And you look at Chinese thinking even today, certainly into the 20th century, um, this, these two schools were argued about and carried on being argued about all the way through the Chinese dynasties. Um, Mao Zedong was absolutely familiar with the arguments between Confucius and the legalist and took the legalist viewpoint and thought that um, the first emperor of China had only done wrong because he hadn't buried uh, alive enough Confucian scholars. Um, you contrast, you, you think about that and you think about um, Chinese um, political thinking even today, contrast it with um, the culture which came out of the, the classical world, and particularly Greek political thinking, and the example that I've used in the book is Socrates, um, who was quite clearly um, you know, an intriguing, brilliant, and to a certain extent heroic figure in, in Greek political thought, but was also a genuine menace um, to the Athenian democracy. Um, this was a democracy which was, of course, highly partial, no women, no slaves. It was only um, a certain number of men who participated in the so-called democracy. But nonetheless, it was a, a, a genuinely fresh, new human experiment. Uh, it was threatened from without, and it was threatened from within. And it was absolutely clear that Socrates was um, inciting groups of young aristocrats um, to despise, protest, um, and ultimately to revolt against the democracy. He was a genuine problem um, for the Athenians. It's not to say that they were right ultimately to sentence him to death, but he was a genuine problem. Our political culture, very differently from the political culture which emerges out of Confucius and the legalists in China, um, is all about how you deal with dissent, how you deal with authority, um, the virtues and the perils of the open society. And I think you can still see 2,000, 3,000 years on the influence of thinking which goes back. The fact that if you go to um, Shanghai today, you see Pret-a-Manger and Starbucks and Mercedes um, and um, all the, uh, the, the designer clothes wears, his name I can't remember because I never go to them, but all those sorts of places... Um, looking exactly the same as any part um, of this city, and you see people um, going about uh, their, their daily life in, in, in the same way that we do, does not mean that they're the same. You know, there are still um, substantial political differences. There was a wonderful piece of work done about 30 years ago on um, uh, tax and uh, um, uh, behaviour in, in, in Italy, where and it was an American scholar, I can't remember his name now, but he, what he did was he went back and he looked at um, the, the rate of um, uh, tax collection and the rate of um, various different crimes 
more or less parish by parish, as early as they were recorded um, in early Renaissance Italy. And then he looked at problems of corruption and um, the non-payment of taxes in the 1980s. And he found that almost parish by parish, exactly the same places were, were, were responsible for the same kind of behavior. So one of the things that we learned from history is it's actually much harder to change cultures um, than perhaps politicians tell us. Um, that's not to be um, fatalistic about it. It's just uh, an important thing to remember. Um, the case for world history, as opposed to national history, is above all that you're able to look at um, simultaneous developments and ask yourself what in Scotland we call daft laddie, that is, simplistic but actually quite important questions about why different parts of the world uh, advance and different parts don't. Um, so it, is, it was intriguing to me that, for instance, in the, the late 1200s, the early 1300s, the, the great African empires south of the Sahara, and particularly the empire of Mali, were probably, um, certainly visitors thought so, uh, as law-abiding, as well-administered, um, and as wealthy as any of the European cultures at the time. And so you ask yourself, why is it then that by the 1700s that part of Africa is collapsing under European influence and the slave trade? What went wrong? Um, was it possible that the great metalworking empires of Benin and Niger um, could have um, produced their own form of metallurgical um, and, and scientific uh, renaissance rather than or alongside what was going on in southern Germany and northern Italy? Um, a very important question, and I think the answer is partly to do uh, with climate and microbes and partly simply to do with bad luck, that they hadn't got to um, firepower, they hadn't got to muskets and gunpowder um, ahead of the Europeans. Um, you can ask um, about two... Another fascinating one to me is the two great empires that were emerging at the same time, uh, the Han Chinese Empire on the one hand and the Roman Empire on the other hand. Huge empires, roughly the same numbers of people. We know this from Roman records and also from Han tax records. Um, roughly the same amount of territory. Um, their armies configured in very similar ways. Um, certainly parallel or analogous um, attitudes to empire, um, the Chinese considering themselves the rulers of all under heaven um, and the, Ro the Romans the rulers of all um, on the globe. Um, they had roughly the same number of cities. Um, uh, they uh, had very similar uh, levels of literacy at that, at that period. So many parallels. Um, and indeed, by the way, um, they even half knew about each other but only half. The Romans were wearing silk, um, and they knew it had come from somewhere they called Ceres, um, but they didn't know much about it. And the Chinese had a rumor that there was somewhere another China in the West. There was the, the, be, bet, between the two of them, of course, were the great barbarian tribes. And there was this wonderful moment um, around AD 90 or thereabouts when a Chinese general had the wonderful idea that if only they could make contact with the other China in the West, then they could come at the barbarians from both sides and kind of squish them. And so he sent one of his commanders off 
um, on this vast journey right across um, the mountains and plains and deserts of, of Central Asia to try and make contact. And uh, this tiny little group of Chinese got all the way across to the borders um, of what is now Egypt, we think, and they certainly made contact with people who were part of the Roman world, um, on the edges of the Roman world, by definition. But these people, yes, they told the Chinese emissaries there was a wonderful empire, huge empire. Its capital city was by a river, and it was surrounded by stone walls. Um, its people were tall and fair-haired and honest. And they had a rather strange um, system for their emperors, who were prepared to stand down if they got things wrong, um, and were also prepared to take petitions and had listened to advice um, groups of senior citizens. There is some kind of echo of an understanding of Roman politics and the Senate going on, on the edges of the Roman Empire. Fascinating stuff. However, um, the Chinese uh, general reported back, the most interesting thing about the Romans is apparently that they're wonderful jugglers. And many of them can juggle up to ten balls at one time. And armed with this useful piece of information, he decided he'd just gone far too bloody far. He wasn't going any further, and he turned around and went all the way back. And by the way, we know this story because it's all still recorded in the Chinese uh, archives and records. One of the great things about doing world history now, of course, is just the sheer amount of new information that's pouring out, pouring out from China, um, pouring out from the former Soviet Union in archives which open and close depending on Putin's mood on the day, but an awful lot of uh, great archives have opened up. And, of course, a huge amount of information uh, from science, too. Um, I, I started um, this book, really, um, with the story of the, the great migration, the single migration out of Africa, um, from which every single person who is not sub-Saharan African now um, is descended. Um, now, that means that we are all non-Sub-Saharan Africans amongst us, at any rate, all descended from not just the same tribe, but also the same woman in the same tribe, same African woman. Um, this seems almost impossible to believe, but this is what the latest um, work on mito mitochondrial DNA suggests. So we know that um, we, we talk of the human family, and we know how closely we're related. Huge amounts of fascinating work going on on DNA, including the amazing number, 22, 23, 24 million men directly descended from Genghis Khan. So you know kind of how Genghis Khan behaved. Um, when, he, when, he, when he arrived in one of the many places he, um, he, he invaded. So it's a very interesting time. But above all, I think it's an important time to be trying to do popular world history because we are now starting to confront each other as world citizens. Um, we are very, very much aware of the return um, of China into the mainstream of the world. These other South Asian countries, we are, all of us, I think, aware of the extreme importance of uh, countries like Brazil over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. And it does seem to me that the way I was taught history, which was little tiny chunks um, of, of um, academic syllabus um, for O-level and then for A-level, um, almost all of it about Britain, um, lots of it colourful and fascinating. You know, we did our Tudors, and the Tudors, I have to say, seem to comprise almost all the history sometimes you see on television. And I've got nothing against the Tudors, but in historical terms, Henry VIII is, is frankly, you know, a rather large sprat. Um, 
not, not quite meaningless, but not far off it. Um, I, was, I, I was never taught about the parallel stories of what was happening in Russia and America at the same time as uh, the Americans uh, were engaged in civil war, which would lead to the emancipation of the slaves, at exactly the same time as Alexander II, Tsar of Russia, was proclaiming his emancipation declaration. At that time, if you were a well-read um, person sitting in London, you'd have opened your newspapers and you would have assumed that the Russians were going to roar ahead into modernity because they had been able to achieve the great reform of emancipation without a civil war, whereas the Americans were tearing themselves apart. So why was that wrong? Those are the kind of big questions that world history allows you to, to start to ask. Now, I don't claim as a completely amateur uh, historian, though I've been reading history closely for 35 years, I don't claim um, to replace in any sense the, the great work of academic historians. I'm entirely a parasite upon them. My job is to interest people in some of those questions, draw them in, and get them to both heckle me, but more importantly, to go out and learn a great deal more um, and form their own views on some of the big themes. I said at the beginning that um, there was a point to this, there was an intention behind all of this. Um, and I want to come to that now, because um, I finished, um, I finished the, the book by arguing more or less that we are a very clever ape in a spot of bother. Um, and the reason I say it is that if you, if, if you think of two different curves, one, the curve of advance of our scientific apprehension, understanding, and dexterity, and the other curve being the advance of our political wisdom and the institutions that embody that. And you think of how those two curves go. I think it is undeniable that our uh, scientific curve has gone whooshing up um, at a rate of a classic acceleration curve, that our uh, ability to understand our universe, begin to understand um, the nature of um, matter, um, so that at least we're aware of what we don't know, our ability to begin to understand our own consciousness, possibly the most extraordinary thing that's happened in the universe that we're aware of. That is amazing, and the, the scientific and health breakthroughs that have accompanied um, the scientific method are part of the reason why there are now 7 billion of us on the planet and there will soon be 9 billion. If you contrast that with uh, the advance of our politics in this period, I think most of you would agree that we haven't gone done quite as well. Um, we have advanced. There's been some very interesting work um, popularised by Stephen Pinker recently, for instance, on the rate of killing in different societies. And there seems to be absolutely no doubt that despite um, the Second World War, um, as time has moved on, we have been living in less lethal times than ever before. If you go back to some cutesy-looking uh, medieval village, whether it's in India or whether it's in England, um, you would find the rate of murder by modern standards utterly horrific and intolerable. Um, remember that in the, you know, even in the age of Jane Austen, um, travelling from one part of Britain to another by coach, um, very often involved being attacked. Um, and the rates of murder, again, horrific. Um, so we have, we, we have become less lethal, um, and we have got the very vestiges, 
the very beginnings of some kind um, of world government or associations, um, which have achieved some things. Um, however, if you then think about the big problems that confront us, uh, whether they be to do with fairness, whether they to be to do with our uh, appetites uh, for more and more stuff, whether they be to do with our ability to think ahead more than a few years, never mind a generation, and start to ask what, the ne- what we owe the next generation, the generation after that, then I think you would see that there has been much less advance. And indeed, if you look around the world and think how rare democracy um, is even now and how ineffectual democracy is a lot of the time, uh, how fragile it is, then I think you'd agree that that, that line has moved much less quickly, much less well. And I, the way I think of it is if you were able to somehow travel back in time and talk to a peasant in, I don't know, um, Christ's time or the year 1100 or wherever, um, you would have no chance of explaining to them about how your iPhone or your mobile phone worked. You would have to explain an entire uh, world of advances in plastics and satellite technology and microelectronics and all the rest of it. Uh, and it would simp- this would simply appear like a piece of magic. I suppose if you travelled back in time, there wouldn't be any satellites, so it would probably be a bit of inert magic, but there we are. Um, but if you had to explain what was going on in Syria at the moment, or recent problems in a country like this about um, MPs cheating on their expenses, or whatever it might be, I think your peasant would get it pretty quickly, you know? <laughs> and it does seem to me that we live at the moment... Um, in the gap between the consequences of our enormous scientific success and the consequences of our much lesser political advance. And that is why, and and we're all um, engaged in this problem because we are all citizens, we all ought to be active citizens and ought to be thinking about it. And that's why a bit of comparative history seems to me to be not only useful but pretty much essential, uh, which was why I um, started on this project. Um, And just before I open to questions, I'll leave you with something that uh, I was told before I started the project and which has absolutely haunted me ever since. And it's a bit extreme, but it comes from Martin Rees, the former uh, astronomer royal, uh, former master of Trinity College in Cambridge, and a proper hardcore astronomer. Um, Now, he, and uh, like me, believes very much that the advance of science Um, is going to carry on um, at spectacular speed. And he has put it out that it's possible, um, and indeed probable, that if science is allowed to carry on advancing over the next 50, 60, 70 years in the way it has over the last 100 years, then we're not so far from being able to adventure into space and even to seed life from the planet um, into other parts of the cosmos. And if that was the case, then the human story would only be beginning. We'd be still still at the beginning of the story. Um, This planet would be able to expand its its life form beyond. On the other hand, with soon to be 9 billion of us on the planet, all of us subsisting on a tiny, tiny little membrane of topsoil. We all only live because there is topsoil 
scattered around the world, the average depth of which is about the depth of my leg, which has taken millennia to form um, in all its complexity and which is constantly eroded and washed to sea and replaced, but being eroded at a vastly faster rate um, than ever before. If we think about that, if we think about nuclear proliferation, if we think about the water problems, if we think about global warming, all the problems that assail us day in, day out, then, Martin Rees argues, it's equally possible <coughs> that over the next uh, two generations we'll wipe ourselves out, in which case it will be the end of the story. So that's rather a big choice, beginning or end, to be made over the last two generations. It is, that, that, that is put um, dramatically and possibly overdramatically but it seems to me to be a useful way of considering the awesome nature of the choices that the next few generations are going to have to make. And in that context, I just hope and believe that they're going to be better educated, including about the history um, of uh, the clever ape over the last 70,000 years than I was when I was their age. Thank you very much. Now, we're going to take questions, and I should emphasise, um, within reason, um, I'm happy to take questions about anything, whether I've discussed it or not. So, so feel free. Any man who writes on the entire history of the world should be yeah, able to questions true. on anything. Fair um, point. When you raise your hand, wait for the stewards to bring you the microphone, right. please. There's, there's a lady at the back there. Oh, the gentleman at the back there. I can't... The, the, the gentleman at the back there, and then a gentleman at the back there. So, you, sir, first. You, well, yes. Me. Yes, you. Okay, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, for the first time in thousands of years, whilst we've known about the East Asian model, we're actually directly competing with them, and they have a slightly higher IQ than us, and generally appear to be slightly more advanced than us at an ever earlier rate. I mean, how far can the deterioration of the West, and I would define the West in this context by Europe, Europe continue? Could there be a situation of perhaps conceivably reverse economic colonization in an informal empire of Europe by Southeast Asia? Absolutely, yes, there could be. Um, what, we, what, what we know is that in the West we have been consuming uh, far more than we've been producing in terms of new wealth for some considerable amount of time. And we haven't simply... This idea that you can simply export um, the making um, of, of uh, our consumer uh, goodies and not export anything else has now been blown to pieces. America has managed to export her debt, um, and increasingly um, we have, we're seeing the exporting of uh, design, um, of all the high-end um, uh, engineering, um, and we're going to see the exporting of management. Will Hutton, who writes very well on China, always used to say, you don't need to worry about China, well, I praise you brutally, you don't need to worry about China too much, how many Chinese companies um, are there in the top World 50 uh, companies? How many Chinese brands do you know? Well, the brands and the companies, I think, will follow what's happening now. Um, on the other end of the scale, you go to somewhere like Greece, um, a particularly um, extreme example, perhaps. You go to Athens at the moment, and you look around, you talk to people. This may be the first time outside a world war where a first world country has been sliding back to becoming a third world country. 
And we have no easy route map for this, not even historical parallels. So the situation is extremely serious and is going to require um, political leadership in the West of a kind that we haven't seen yet, including telling us the truth about what's happening. Gentleman here, I think, was, were you, yes, can we have a, another microphone, yeah? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it was an interesting uh, lecture. Um, I think uh, there is hope for the human species because I've read a little bit on the historical and history about humankind and um, it's interesting that uh, humankind has uh, lived through uh, three different near extinctions and uh, and I've also read Jared Diamond that it's a lot more complex that the reason why different civilizations mm. don't rise is just like you say it's just an environmental thing and sometimes that these well, are the go ahead Different civilizations, uh, lots of civilizations um, or cultures have come up against um, extinctions, very often caused by nature or more, more, more often that caused by their own behaviors. And the example I've used is the Nazca people in Peru, a very um, technically advanced and, 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 and rather sophisticated culture, which they hadn't realized depended on a particular kind of tree, which when they cut it down, um, meant that when the rains came, basically they lost their topsoil um, and they were starved out and their culture died very, very quickly. Um, and by the way, is still lying there in the desert. I mean, you know, the, the burial sites, the, the fabrics um, from um, the time that the Vikings were around here um, are still lying there untouched, um, mostly untouched. Uh, so we've seen lots of extinction, uh, cultural extinction moments before. Um, as interesting of course, are the moments when cultures take a different route and do something unexpected. And the example that I use here, um, that I think is a very interesting one, if you think of uh, the year 1600 thereabouts, um, England or Britain on the one side of the world and Japan on the other are in very similar positions. They are island archipelagos um, offshore from a very powerful uh, mainland culture, um, Catholic Europe on the one hand, um, and China on the other. Um, they're technically advanced, roughly the same. They've even got the same drugs problem because the Tokawara uh, shogun and King James VI and I are both really worried about the disruptive impact of tobacco, which has arrived from America, and groups of men hanging around smoking and behaving badly. They're both concerned with the same problem. Um, the British respond to this problem, of course, by... Um, using their ocean-going fleets to start to spread around the world. And the Japanese do exactly the opposite. Um, they have got about half a million Christians who are causing a lot of trouble in Japan at the time, and they decide to close off entirely from the rest of the world, and they go through 200, 220 years of closed policy, where it becomes uh, a capital offence to try to leave Japan or to enter Japan. And their ocean-going ships, and they had at least two perfect replicas of European ocean-going galleons at that point, perfectly capable of going around the world. They could have built a European-style fleet even then, just like that. And they chose not to, and in fact they did the opposite. They cut holes um, in the sterns of their ocean-going ships so that if they went too far out to sea, um, the swell would sink them. Um, so ships deliberately designed not to go too far. Interesting concept. And this was always talked about 
as a completely stupid thing to do. Silly old Japanese, the Europeans were off creating empires and they closed off. And of course, eventually, the Americans, Commodore Perry, arrived with his, his steamships um, and battered them into submission. But in that period, the Japanese avoided um, all the main uh, diseases that were carried around the world by the, the, the new um, shipping routes. They actually expanded their population far more successfully than anywhere in Europe. They did have a big problem with deforestation, and they learned better silviculture, and they reforested Japan, and even today it is the most wooded of all the major uh, industrial economies. Um, they uh, developed um, uh, a diet based on fish and rice, which was entirely sustainable. Um, and, of course, all the kind of intense glories of, of Japanese culture, the Japanese-ness of Japan, um, developed particularly during this period of time. They also, by the way, although they had an authoritarian style of government, um, virtually totally abandoned guns and gunpowder, um, put away most of the weapons, and went through a very, very long period of internal peace. So population growth, Edo, the capital city, was the biggest in the world at the time, uh, highly successful population growth, um, relative longevity, sustainable food, the forests growing back, and quite a good culture. If that was a bad mistake, you know, there have been worse ones made in human culture. So one of the things that we learn is that when cultures are facing big choices, there are always more than one, there's always more than one way to go. The problem, of course, we have now is that there are seven billion of us, and the mistakes we make are going to be disproportionately dangerous. Gentleman at the back there. Um, I'm Heide from Bain Company. Uh, my question was, you mentioned about, you spoke about the progress and the speed of progress with which humanity has been advancing on the technological front, the science front, and a bit slower on the political front. Um, each of these speeds of progress is still much faster than what any of the other animals has seen. So my question is, what do you think drives the incredible speed of that progress? Is it just evolution? Is it morality? Is it intellect? Um, is it the specialization of labor? Is it a combination of all? What, what do you think are the key drivers of that speed? And do you think that the, the increase in speed of them all will continue to increase? Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm an uh, unapologetic Darwinist, um, so I believe it's, a, it, it's an evolutionary-driven advance. I think once you get to a certain level, um, once you get large groups of cooperating um, homo sapiens uh, tribes working together uh, and using language, then you have something that's never been seen on the planet before and which is utterly, utterly formidable. Now, how we got there um, is still much argued about, but it's clearly to do with climate change. Um, we, we get tougher, we get more successful, having been pushed to the edge of extinction ourselves and having to learn very fast um, in, in historical terms. But you just have to look at what happens to the other large, um, uh, top-of-the-range carnivorous animals around the world as the humans spread, to see that we are also one of the most successfully violent creatures on the planet. Um, you know, uh, everywhere we go, um, the top predators disappear pretty quickly. Um, uh, and it happens, you know, all around the world. So 
Um, it, I, I believe it's absolutely driven by evolution. I'm no expert, obviously, on the early uh, story of, of hominid evolution, though I've tried to include some of the basic arguments and the controversies in the book. Um, but that's the first There's two gentlemen here at the front. I've been ignoring the front. There's a gentleman here in the middle and then right at the front there. Can we have a microphone to chat with Green? Green Road back. Could I ask you why you feel so little progress has been made in respect of human conflict? Um, well, I think that we are an innately um, aggressive and tribal creature. Um, and that in those parts of the world where conflict has been particularly horrendous, um, we are able to learn from it. Um, but that is not something that is easy to transmit to other parts of the world. Um, so there has been no doubt that um, keeping the peace in Europe over the last 60 years is because of a very vivid sense inside European cultures about what the opposite um, has led to and meant. But that hasn't translated successfully um, to attitudes to conflict and, and, and peace, for instance, in the Middle East or in other parts of the world. Um, it, seems to be, it seems to be something in our nature. We are, we are a violent and, and difficult creature, um, and as I say, innately tribal. Um, so it's one of the things... But, you know, the more we understand about it, the more we remember about it, um, the better things get. And after all... Um, compared to almost any other period of human history, and even taking into account what's happening in, in Syria at the moment, what's happening in different parts of Africa, and even taking into account the, the great dangers of, for instance, um, Iran's nuclear program, we have been living through a comparatively peaceful period. Uh, it just requires an awful lot of work to keep it so. Thank you. There's a gentleman here at the front. Beard, and then I'll go back up. I just want to explore your final point. Um, and I sort of see that uh, social media is really going to start to change the dynamics of the political sphere and go, moving forward, that might be the driving factor of um, changes in how politicians behave. Um, it, it, may, it may very well be. And certainly what, we, what we're seeing at the moment is an erosion and a collapse of authority structures of all kinds. Um, as a result of, of the social media and technology. Um, and, you know, that's potentially very positive. Um, I suppose the danger is that everything gets reduced to sort of relatively short soundbite comments. Um, you know, there, there is the need um, for sort of serious, hard, long-form policy work, which comes in long, dreary, difficult paragraphs with lots of appendices and graphs and all the rest of it, and people to think that way. I'm, I'm probably mo more worried than anything else about the problem of uh, forward thinking in all of our Western cultures based on a sort of four- or five-year electoral cycle. So someone gets elected, um, and then they have a short period uh, where they have the authority of being newly elected. They've got the wind at their back, but they don't know how to govern, generally speaking. Tony Blair has talked about this, quite frankly. By the time they do know how to govern, it's all over. <laughs> you know, they've lost their authority, or, or, or they're desperately thinking about the next election. Now, we were talking about China earlier on. Um, whatever you think of the Chinese system, they do think long-term, and they have a Politburo full of uh, social scientists and engineers and so on, thinking 50 years ahead. They may very well get it wrong, but that's one of our big problems, and I'm not sure the social media are going to help us with that. Now, um, I, there's a lady there. Um, 
and a lady, not a lady there, right, a man there. I'll come to you in a second. Right. Lady here first. Yeah. Hi, Andrew. I'm uh, Priya. And uh, my question was that it seems that um, the human intellect um, is on steroids and we've leaped ahead technologically, scientifically, whereas um, when it comes to, as you said, the uh, political sphere, we barely seem to have inched forward from the dark ages. So in your view, would it be apt to extrapolate that while the human intellect has galloped ahead, human nature hasn't quite made such a progress? And if that is the case, how do we reconcile these two different growth rates? Well, I think you put it perfectly in terms of the, you know, the analysis. Um, as, as to the answer, um, w- one of the answers, frankly, is that we have to start taking politics more seriously. I don't mean simply in the case of signing up for political parties and, and, and voting and all of that, um, but also how we think about politics. Um, politics is not an add-on. You know, it's absolutely the heart of these choices and decisions. Um, we don't talk enough about it. We don't think enough about our political structures. Um, we have this terrible problem now in Europe whereby to have the, a, a single currency effectively working really is driving um, the major European countries to accepting a single European state. But how is that reconcilable um, with democracy in so many different languages? Are there alternatives? You know, some people on the other side of the argument talk about a Europe of lots and lots of smaller sort of Singaporean city-states and so on. We have to start to engage in these bigger subjects much more than we have before and not think of politics as something boring on the television that you only have to consider every five years. Gentlemen here. Yes, I just want to emphasize, but you don't think that uh, the history as well as the policy will be transformed by the knowledge because now is, I mean, everybody are moving towards knowledge. Knowledge means that you know, they have information about anything in a global say, in a marketing, so this completely transformed the way of uh, even the culture. Mm. Certainly when it comes to history, um, uh, almost anything that you're interested in, you pick up the book and you read through it and say, I want to know more about that, you can get to um, deeper knowledge very, very fast. Um, and uh, I'm not just talking about Wikipedia. Um, I was talking about, if, earlier on, for instance, about... Um, the comparison between the Roman Empire and the Han Empire. It's fantastic work um, being done uh, in, in uh, California uh, at Berkeley on this, a particular unit. And you can, you, can, you can get access to it very easily on the internet. You know, it, it takes a while, and you can order the stuff. But it's, um, it, it is a cornucopia of wonderful information. The trouble is, most of us are busy, you know? Most people don't have time to access it all. And therefore, I think there is a case, if I may say so, um, for the generalist to try and bring things together. <laughs> um, so there's a, a lady there and then a chap at the back there. Yes, you, you sir. Uh, hi, Andrew. I'm from India, so my question would be related to my country. Uh, starting from the you know, handful of men coming as East India Company to such a long period of the Raj, ending up into the country being divided into two countries which have actually turned into the worst enemies for each other. Mm. So as the topic says, can we learn from history? India surely, you know, has much to learn from its history, and I just want, you know, wanted to know how you have analyzed it in your book. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I talk a, a, a fair amount about pre-British history uh, in India because that's one of the things that people in this country don't know enough about. Um, but there's a very good, there's very good um, 
learning from history example, I think, um, during the Mughal, Mughal period, Mughal period, where um, I wanted to talk about um, the, the, the whole issue of um, absolutism, um, but not to take Louis XIV. Everyone goes for Louis XIV as the absolutist. Instead, I went to the Mughals, and I looked at the story of Aurangzeb, who was the last of the great Mughal emperors. Now, there was a series, um, Akbar and, and others, of, of great Mughal rulers who were um, abnormally open-minded um, and almost, you might say, liberal when it came to um, absorbing other cultures and accepting that they were ruling a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual part of the world and finding ways to do it. Then along comes Aurangzeb, who is a hardcore um, Muslim and is determined to stamp Islam um, across the whole subcontinent and spends 22 years um, fighting down in the south to um, stamp out uh, the independent Hindu states. Um, a war which he sort of half wins and half doesn't, but so bankrupts and hollows out the great Mughal Empire that when the British arrived, we more or less just sort of tapped the door and it fell in. Um, the reason that so few, such a small number of Europeans was able to take over India wasn't to do with firepower, actually, or military tactics. It was that we arrived at a time when, because of religious extremism and intolerance, an empire was destroying itself. Um, there's a gentleman back there as well. Your hand up, and then I'll come to you, sir. Thank you. Um, the question on my uh, left. Uh, I mean, creativity and innovation has really been responsible for human uh, uh, progress and growth. The creativity and innovation. So if we have developed very well, it's because of the creativity and innovation. Now, it is said that the creativity and innovation is, is helped, or what you call is, um, uh, does uh, progress better in a liberal societies. So does, hi does history bear any witness to this, that liberal societies are more creative? Um, Thank our, you. Okay, so are liberal societies more creative? That's a, that, 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 that is a very hard one. Um, it does seem to me that if you go through history, the successful societies, that, by which I mean the ones that carry on uh, growing um, uh, without destroying themselves or their neighbours for a reasonable period of time, they have a tension in them. They always do between um, the conservative, if you like, mindset, belief in the wisdom of the elders and the wisdom of the tribe and an ability to innovate and push um, a radical um, instinct too. And in societies which appear to be evolving successfully over quite a long period of time, like, for instance, modern America, um, you would say these two, these two tensions are always present. Americans are always trying to do, make things anew and are always thinking back to the, uh, the founding principles and, and, and religious basics at the same time. Look, at any society that goes too far one way or another tends to get into terrible trouble. The excessively conservative societies of um, late imperial China or imperial Russia um, fossilize and, and collapse. Societies which are too extreme in their modernization or their, their, their radicalism, revolutionary France, revolutionary Russia, collapse even faster. Um, so what you need is a tension between these two instincts, the, the wisdom of the tribe, traditional conservative values, and the determination to keep trying and keep experimenting. And that tension seems to happen best when there is enough 
liberal atmosphere to allow people to challenge uh, old tenets without being stoned or shouted down or thrown, uh, thrown down. Um, and yet, um, there is enough respect for what's been accumulated wisdom for that not to be knocked down either. A very, very good example, very quickly, would be um, the fascinating period um, of the growth of Islam um, from perhaps around 850, 900, um, through to about 1300, where you've got this wonderfully open-minded, youthful Islam, curious about the world around it, um, reaching out. Um, and you know, it then begins to fossilise, and um, w- with, with, I think, tragic results. Um, there was a gentleman at the front there. Yeah. Uh, you said earlier that the centuries in Europe have ignored the local customs and practices of the different countries within. Um, do these leaders realise their mistake and, and how are they going to deal with it? Uh, well, the current leaders, if it's a mistake, certainly don't um, because, because the, the drive is very much for uh, deeper union. Um, and the drive is for deeper union because without deeper union, then the euro goes. Uh, it seems to, seems to them, and it would seem, I think, to a, to, to a lot of independent observers. All those people who said at the beginning of the Euro, Euro project that it's very difficult to have a single currency if you don't ultimately have a single taxation system um, and a single fiscal policy, and that in turn means something quite close to a single government. You can have lots of cultural differences, and um, you know, the minorities can dance, as they did under the Soviet Union, but you, you, know, you, you do need a single system. Do you so, predict further conflict then? I, 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 think, I think it is an utterly um, horrendous and perplexing dilemma for um, continental Europeans in particular um, to go deeper or not. You can see great swathes of the continent that could effectively become a single country. I think a lot of the northern countries and Germany and indeed Poland, and then you look at the southern economies, but that's not the option they've got. They're yoked together. So it's not, luckily it's not my business. I'm not allowed to make predictions, thank God, about that. But it's, it's, it's a tough one. Um, right, there's um, gentleman up there at the, with, with a white jersey at the back there, and then gentleman with green jersey in the middle, the front, and then lady there. Right. You're good at this. Well done. <laughs> David, Jim will beat your heart out. <laughs> oh, hi, Andrew. Um, uh, my question is about the geopolitics of uh, energy security. Um, there's so much conflict from the past thousands of years is all about fighting for oil and gas and so on. Um, There's vast gas reserves in Siberia coming on stream, and also in the years to come, North America could be really gaining a higher level of energy uh, independence. How do you see that changing the balance of power worldwide? But also, do you see a potential huge conflict uh, in different regions, not over oil, but actually over dwindling supplies of fresh water? Potentially, water is going to be a bigger problem even than oil. That's absolutely right. I remember talking to uh, Lord Brown, if you remember him, when he was head of BP some way back, and saying to him, what's the biggest problem that you've got? He said, oh, people in the oil industry, we've really only got one problem. Um, we can get our reserves from Russia, or we can get them from the Middle East. In Russia, all sorts of political problems and you know, corruption, and you're never sure who's going to be in charge the Middle East, um, different kinds of political problems. And really, which way do you go? <laughs> that's, that, that's the problem. Now, today, um, that is no longer, it no longer looks that way. Um, I'm, you know, I, I, all I know about fracking 
is what I read about fracking, and you've, it's, it's interesting becoming an extremely um, hot political topic here mm. now. Um, but certainly in the United States, um, shale oil and new reserves of, uh, of gas look like giving the Americans, if they, if they can go fast enough for it, a kind of energy security they've never had before. That will hugely affect the cost of business in America. And already you're seeing businesses coming back to America that had, had, had gone overseas because of energy um, costs. And imagine a world where Europe and America don't have direct oil and gas interests in the Middle East and, and how that could improve the situation there. So, I mean, we've been talking, as one always does in these things, quite a lot about the gloomy downside of things. But I think, you know, on energy security, there is a, there is a potential upside coming too. Um, and gentlemen there, yes. Uh, you, you mentioned briefly Will Hutton's book on China, mm. and as I remember it, <clears throat> one of his main theses was that China would never ever catch up with America, and the reason it was held back was its lack of openness, um, its lack of democracy. Now that book was written some time ago. Yes. I'm wondering if with the passage of time things have changed, I don't know if Will Hutton still thinks what he thought when he wrote that book, and wondering what you yes. think of that thesis. Well, I, d I don't know what he thinks. I mean, his, uh, his, his, one of his main points was the lack of property rights, um, uh, effective property rights as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I go to China um, a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm no expert. I, every time I go, I am fascinated by the conversations sort of going on just underneath the surface. Um, I remember talking to somebody I was, I was filming there with who's Chinese and indeed a member of the Communist Party um, who said to me early on, you, wrote, you did a film about Adam Smith, didn't you? And I said, yes. I do know. Said, and in that, you said that Adam Smith's wealth of, uh, wealth of nations wasn't quite as important as his theory of moral sentiments. I said, yes. It's a slightly odd conversation to be having the back of a car in the middle of China. Um, and, and, and she said, well, how can I get a good copy of, of, of the theory of moral sentiments? So I've tried to teller. And then I said, forgive me, how do, you, how do you know about Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments? And he said, oh, Deng Xiaoping always said that after Karl Marx, Adam Smith was the most important political philosopher there was. Um, and then we had long conversations about what would have happened if the Kuomintang had won instead of, the, the, uh, instead of Mao in 1948. And I was told these conversations are bubbling all over the place in China. Um, I do think that once um, you lift the lid, once you get urbanised uh, populations talking to each other, never mind um, the liberation of the new media, it is impossible to keep your thumb completely down. And the Chinese spend a lot of time um, using polling, deliberative polling, focus groups and so on, trying to second guess what people want and give it to them just in time that they don't challenge the system. I was once talking to a, a, a senior Chinese official um, who said, well, we'd been having the usual argument about uh, democracy and China and openness. Um, and he said, no, no, he said, you don't get it really, do you? He said, in the West, you have a street of restaurants, and they've all got different labels on them, and they've all got different names, and outside there's different kind of maitre d's, he didn't use the word maitre d's, there's guys hanging around, and they all basically serve the same stuff, um, by which he meant your political parties are all basically serving the same stuff. In China, he said, we only have one restaurant, but we have an increasingly long menu, um, which, you know, I thought was, uh, that was a, a, an engaging way of putting it. So I do think China is opening up. For instance, there's a lady there, and then you, the lady there with the spectacles, and then I'll come back to this gentleman. Yeah, thank you. 
Yes. Uh, well, thank you. For, for, first of all, thank you for a great lecture. Um, I really like your example about persistence of culture in Italy across uh, parishes. Yes. And if we think about uh, lack of political progress, uh, democracy started off in Athens a long, long time ago, and uh, there's still, I mean, if we look across centuries, a lot of countries that actually have never seen democracy at all, like Russia or China. Mm. And um, I don't know, maybe, and I mean, democracy is more or less, one could argue, a Western system of mm -hmm. dealing with political issues. So uh, the question is, um, do you think that democracy might not altogether be an exportable system, so to speak? Exportable? I, yeah. Well, I think, I think the evidence is that democracy is exportable. It depends on the... Um, the circumstances in which it's exported. I mean, it was exported very successfully to Japan, admittedly after a complete collapse of the old order and the old authority there. Um, and it's been exported successfully to parts of Africa and not to other parts of Africa. And so, so it depends on the circumstances. Um, it seems to me that the, the notion of the open society, in which there is freedom to challenge, question, um, and suggest, is almost as important. Um, and that is what is... Th that seems harder, in some respects, to export than a mechanical voting system. Um, we haven't talked much about, about Russia, but one of the things that really uh, haunted me looking, looking at Russian history is, um, you know, during uh, the, the 1300s, the biggest European power was Novgorod. Now, Novgorod had, didn't have democracy, but it had a more open society than Moscow. Um, it was a little bit more like Venice. It had a sort of open oligarchy um, and a, a lot of cross-currents trading um, people coming in from, from the low countries in Germany and indeed England and so on, the fur trade. And I always wonder what would have happened to Russian history if Novgorod had defeated Moscow, which had the authoritarian czarist system, rather than the other way around. Um, some of these, you know, these, these differences between open and closed societies and democracies and non-democracies are almost the chances of history, which then get stuck. Um, and it was... Yes, um, What's your view on the idea that history ended in 1990? Um, it didn't, clearly. Um, no, I mean, it's in uh, Francis Fukuyama. Fukuyama. Actually, I have to say, um, Fukuyama, of course, gets much mocked these days for suggesting the end of history, all countries in the world were coming together, they were all going to be similar liberal democracies, and it was all, uh, all big arguments were over. It's a very sophisticated and very interesting book that's still worth reading, The End of History and the Last Man. Um, but clearly, as between the two extremes, there's, so there's Fukuyama saying, basically, the West has won, we're all going to be exactly the same, doing things in the same way. And on the other side, um, Samuel Huntingdon um, talking about the clash of civilizations um, as if it was an inevitability. Uh, we're more in the Huntingdon world today than we are in the Fukuyama world. Um, you know, I am, in, in general terms, I am an optimist. Even when you look at something like what's going on um, in the, the Arab world after the Arab Spring, this long, bloody, authoritarian, very difficult Arab winter that's followed, that is probably... Um, an inevitable consequence of such a long period of repression before. Even there, ultimately, I'm an optimist. But no, um, if history is driven by different ideas about how we should live together and different systems of living together, then, well, my hope is that it's only just getting going. Um, and there's a gentleman there, and then a gentleman at the back with a beard. Hi, Andrew. My question is... Uh 
We all know 1840 is the year where China started its 100 years of humiliation, yeah. which is caused by the British shipping opium to China, which is just as damaging or even worse than what the Japanese have done. What do you think is the reason why China has more hatred towards the Japanese, but bizarrely fond of the British culture? <laughs> Photography, probably. Um, it, it's more vivid, it's more recent, it's on film, and, and, and The Rape of Nanking and so on is, is, is therefore more vividly and immediately remembered, and of course probably made more of um, during the communist years, even than the years of humiliation. Um, but, you know, I, the story I've chosen, and I'm not the first, is Commissioner Lin, who was the, you know, the ultimate heroic anti-drugs campaigner. It's just that we were the drugs peddlers in those days uh, rather than the other. Um, I think what happened to China in the 19th century is a terrible, terrible story. And if you look at the number of people who died during, for instance, the Taiping Rebellion, which followed the beginning of the collapse of imperial authority, it's an appalling story. And there were lots of interesting Chinese leaders who did so much to... Try, try to pull China back, but China was too big and too weak, and there were too many wolves circling at the time. Um, no, I think, but I think the answer to your question is, sim is simply that what, what happened uh, when the Japanese arrived in China um, was more recent, and that's why it stayed in people's memories more strongly. You want to come back? I'll, I'll give you a, a, very, a very quick come back on that, and then there's a chapter about that. Do you think the role of the government played a major important part in this whole process, say, the indoctrination of, you know, the education or...? What, anti-Japanese feeling, as it were? Yes. Um, yeah, well, clearly both countries. But I, mean, I mean, you know, there are, there, are, there, are, there are Japanese politicians whipping it up too now. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's, it just looks at a sort of tragic reversion to kind of 19th century nationalist instincts from a European perspective. And yes, of course, the governments are both involved. Uh, gentleman at the back, um, and the gentleman here. Um, hi, thanks for the uh, for the talk. Uh, you serious was uh, fantastic. So Thank you. Awesome. Um, what do you think is the major? If, if you think there is, what do you think is the major risk of um, of that type of work you do? So essentially, of avowedly popular history. Uh, the, well, the, ma the major. Well, apart from um, making a fool of myself, uh, which I do on a regular basis recreationally um, uh, I think, I think um, the biggest danger is being glib um, is making too many wild assertions uh, which sound good but aren't based on proper fact and I, what, what I was doing under the surface as it were was I was paddling very hard I was working very very hard to ensure that what I said I could properly defend and I could point to uh, reputable academic sources and understand the arguments behind the assertions which are made um, forcefully and strongly. And, you know, certainly in terms of the television side of it, um, there is the inevitable, um, slightly risible aspect of, of dramatisation. You know, it's very, very hard to do uh, dramatisations of uh, early mankind without it looking um, like horrible histories and stuck on, stuck on beards. And you keep coming across these moments where things go a bit pear-shaped. The one I've talked about before but really sticks in my mind was when I first saw the film of the young Alexander the Great um, being admired by his father, Philip II of Macedon. And I phoned up the person concerned and done it. I said, that's great. Can you remember what Philip was called in the ancient world? It was a long pause. No. I was able to say Philip the One-Eyed. Um, because half his face had been staved in. Of course, our actor had both eyes, so we had to do a bit of quick digital work to, 
wipe out an eye. So, you know, <laughs> inev inevitably, unless you've got huge Hollywood budgets, you know, some of that is going to look a bit, a bit iffy. But I, I would defend it because, in a sense, those were the coloured illustrations um, from the history books that I was brought up with, taken to the television age. But that's, that's, that's an obvious answer to your question. And there was somebody here. Yes, sorry. Thanks. Um, going back to politics, do you think we should be obliged to vote? No, I don't. I, I, th I, I mean, I don't think we should be obliged to do anything unless it's absolutely essential. Um, and the only thing I would say, you know, if you don't vote, you can't really complain about the result. Um, you know, um, but that's up to you. And I, so I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm against sort of banning things where, uh, unless absolutely avoidable. But I know the argument the other way too. Now there was somebody, there's somebody there, I think. Yes, you take them, and then the gentleman at the back there as well. Um, Andrew, you mentioned your uh, your own experience in the classroom when you were younger mm. as um, colourful but little chunks of history. Um, what are your thoughts on the proposal today by a committee of parliamentary MPs for a qualification in British history at 16? And um, is there a danger? that in a bid to safeguard the next generation's um, knowledge of the little tiny chunks of British history, often colourful, um, might actually result in not having the uh, conceptual understanding or be able to draw those big comparisons? Well, I, I mean, as you would guess, I'm in favour of big history in the sense of joining things up. And what I'm worried about um, is the kind of history teaching which gives people a fantastic in, you know, insight into the late Tudor world and maybe a little bit of the dissolution of the monasteries and a little bit of the rise of Hitler, but no sense of how anything connects. And I know that's a tradition. It's very difficult and it can sound a bit boring. We've just got to teach it better. It seems to me to be really important to give people the sort of spinal structure of what happened when and where, and then people can then go off and find out the bits they're interested in and, and, and go deeper. So um, if the curriculum is nuggety, then I'm worried about it. But I suspect, it, I think this is Simon Sharma's lot, probably, in which case I'm inclined to think it'll be quite good. Gentleman at the back. With the jersey, yes. Sorry. Okay. You uh, started the lecture by okay. saying that uh, you, we could learn from the... Sorry, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm listening <laughs> and pointing at the same time. Sorry, I beg, you, I beg your pardon. Sorry, carry on. Uh, you started the lecture by saying uh, we could learn from history by using the example of the Great Depression and the mm. financial crisis of 2008. Yes. But given the situation in Greece at the moment, uh, given the situation in Spain and Portugal, and the thesis of many economists and yourself that we could return to a third world economy, do you not think that there's a possibility we could still return to the situation of the Great Depression, especially considering that this financial crisis isn't anywhere near over? Absolutely. Well, yes, it, 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 can, it remains a serious, present, ever-present risk. Um, all I can say is that at least policymakers, certainly the ones I talk to, are very aware of the problem and they agonise about it all the time. Um, doesn't mean they'll get the right answers. Um, one of the things that's, got, that, that, that's happening in, in Southern Europe, of course, is a massive and largely unreported emigration movement. Huge numbers of people leaving and moving into the rest of Europe. Um, but what we haven't seen so far, the only thing we haven't seen that's absolutely crucial, 
is we haven't seen uh, protectionist barriers going up. And we haven't seen, very interesting in Europe, we haven't really seen in any of the big countries the kind of nationalist rhetoric that you would have expected at this time. Yes, there's the golden dawn in Greece, and it's not surprising given the extreme nature of what's happening in Greece that odd stuff is kicking off there. But by and large, you know, in, e- even in Italy, with its very flawed democracy, and certainly in Spain, you're not seeing a return to kind of that sort of hardcore nationalist, rejectionist rhetoric that you would have perhaps expected. And that may be because people remember their history. Um, now, there was somebody who else... Uh, point. You have an early friend. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Andrew. Um, Hi. First, I'd like to thank you for your brilliant talk. And I'd like to ask, what is your view on historical determinism and what do you think we can learn from it? Um, in, in a sense... It doesn't. It, it, all the historical determinism seems to me to mean is that what happened happened. Um, by definition, you can't prove that other things. You know, that there's an alternative history that nearly happened, or you know, things have happened differently. Um, I don't. I'm not. I, I'm not a material determinist in the sense that I think ideas really matter. Um, that's why I've included a lot of um, uh, thinkers. Um, and, and discussion of ideas in this book. Um, I'm a determinist in the sense that if you say, why did the Industrial Revolution happen in Britain uh, when it did, rather than in Italy 100 years earlier or France 50 years uh, earlier, um, then it's because of a whole series of things coming together at just the right moment. Everything from patent law to um, a relatively free press to uh, copious supplies of coal to some French um, inventors of early steam engines uh, bringing their designs to Paris and so, uh, to, to, to London and so on. You require a whole series of things suddenly to come together and therefore you can work backwards and you can say that China in the 1300s was quite close to an industrial revolution but it didn't happen because this and this and this. Um, but that's the extent of my determinism, I'm afraid. Thank you. One more question. One more question. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll take this gentleman here. I'm, I... Oh, Thank you. Um, Given the divisions in the Middle East, not just uh, exclusively Israel and its neighbours, but also uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Syria, etc., is there any kind of historical precedent for turmoil to this extent in a region, and can we extrapolate a possible solution from that? Well, if you think of the Middle East as um, a group of uh, an area of more or less um, authoritarian uh, and, and nationalist um, countries um, sharing a religion mostly um, but being constantly uh, edgy um, and on the edge of war with each other um, then the obvious parallel is Europe in the Renaissance or U- Europe in the 16th or 17th centuries um, there is nothing happening in the Middle East today that Europeans haven't been through several times before and the only difference really Um, is the nature of the weaponry. Um, You know, a a conflict of that kind. Um, Had the the princelings of uh, northern Italy or southern Germany had nuclear-tipped lances on their their horses, it would have been a much more serious matter. But that seems to me to be really the only difference. Um, I'm sorry, I'm taking this gentleman's been trying to get in one more time. Last question, then I probably had better call it a day. Thank you. You are a very nice and smooth lecturer.
You can come again. If, yeah. if LSE asks you to teach a course for, <laughs> ne- please, for next term, what title are you going to teach and do you have a specific uh, syllabus? For <laughs> That's very kind. I, if, you are, if you are looking for the hardest uh, economic and political topic of all um, and using a kind of rolling seminar to try to tease out what should be done, then I actually think what happens in Europe would be a great one. I think to start to talk, we, 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 have this, we have this sort of very difficult debate in this country where we have rejectionists on the one hand and still some absolute integrationists on the other. And the real world of how you can reconcile genuine effective democracy in a single currency area or a single economic area. And if you can't, what you should do about it um, in the most sensible kind of humane way That is the conversation that needs to be had, it seems to me, above all else in institutions like this. Um, I'm glad to say that I'm um, both, uh, um, in terms of my uh, contractually as well as intellectually, uh, unable to do this. Um, And I was just going to ask you which day you'd offer it. I, I, I wish somebody would. Thank you very much.